As you're getting out your Bibles, uh, this morning we're going to be uh, focusing on the text from Mark 14, um, but we're going to have you turn somewhere else, and I know some of you take notes, so if you want to put that down, Mark 14, 53 through 72 is going to be our main text, and we'll return to that shortly, but you'll want to open to Genesis 12, 5 through 9. That'll be the first place I'll have you read. Genesis 12, 5 through 9. This last week, as uh, Tyler mentioned, uh, and you may have seen in the news, there were terrorist attacks in France. One of those attacks was directed at worshipers in a local Catholic church. Three victims, a 55-year-old man and two women ages 44 and 60, were killed when the attacker tried to behead them with a knife. According to one Associated Press article, the three were killed, quote, only because they were in the church at that moment, end quote. This attack was horrific and blatant evil that should break our hearts and bring us to our knees. Our only solace is that if genuine faith existed, that a brother and two sisters in Christ were welcomed into the arms of our glorious and loving Savior. I bring this up because, interestingly, depending upon the source, the word martyr has been used to describe both the attacker and those who were attacked. And the question arises, who was actually a martyr? And the answer, using the true definition and background of the word martyr, is that they both were. It sounds even a bit disrespectful to the victims to say that, but the word is properly used for both because the word martyr comes from the Greek word martus. It means witness. It's the origins of our word martyr. And in this case, one was testifying to a belief and a belief system that glorifies killing innocents in the name of its religion. The Christians who were murdered, however, were also martyrs, testifying to the greatness and true goodness of the one true God, who was likewise killed at the hands of evil men, sacrificed as a sheep to the slaughter to show the love of God towards even his enemies. And by their death, they were stepping into the line of many past martyrs who have gone to their death to testify to the greatness of the Christian gospel. Whether they knew that or not at the moment, whether that entered their mind, that's what they were doing. Their witness was to proclaim the truth that God is love and he has sent his son Jesus to witness to his glory. In his ministry of restoration and healing, as well as his death, his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has done just that. He has been the faithful and true witness of God. And that's what we're going to take a look at today in our text from Mark. You can write down the, the title for the sermon today, Jesus Christ is the true and faithful witness. He's the faithful witness of God. This idea of witness is at the core of our faith and is central to the narrative of Scripture. You can't really read Scripture and fully understand it without understanding this idea of witness or testimony. To understand God, his creation, the storyline of the Bible, and our purpose, we should be intimately connected to this idea of witness. Many things can be considered witnesses in Scripture. Not unlike today, the idea of witness probably pops into our mind, and many of us would think of a witness at a trial, a person who's speaking and testifying to something that they saw. And there's that witness in a legal proceeding uh, all throughout Scripture, especially in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. 
But God himself can also act as a witness. He can act as a witness in the case of Job, for example. Job cries out and says, I need God as my witness to my integrity and character, and, and God takes that place. Even inanimate objects can witness and testify. They can be considered this martus, this witness. For example, uh, a covenant is a great uh, example of this idea. Uh, this is from the covenant between Laban and Jacob in Genesis 31:44. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. A witness. Even the entirety of the narrative of Scripture speaks to this idea of witness, doesn't it? Which again, in the Greek, it means uh, this word from which we get the idea of martyr, one who witnesses and testifies with their very life. The beginnings of creation itself was to witness to the glory of God. Have you guys ever thought about that before? All of creation, the fact that material uh, even exists, is to witness to the glory of the creator God. That's the entire meaning of all creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, Psalm 19.1. And within this creation, man was created, especially in the image of God, to be small reflections of him. The word used in the creation account is that man was to be the image, and that word behind there is this idea of an idol or a statue. We were supposed to be small statues that reflected God so that all of creation could be reminded of who God is. That when they would look to us, that when the animals and the created realm and other humans would look to you and I, would look to Adam and Eve, they would see a reflection of who God is. But as those image bearers, unfortunately, they didn't do what they were supposed to. They were supposed to have allegiance to Yahweh above all other gods, all other sources of truth and authority, even their own internal feelings and heart. But this ended up failing when they looked to the serpent and to their own internal truth to deny the authority of the creator. Mankind refused God and further spiraled downhill more and more and more. You guys know this throughout scripture, right? And so God pulled a man named Abram up from a pagan and idolatrous people and called him to be loyal and allegiant to him alone above all other gods. This is the core of Abrahamic righteousness that goes all throughout Scripture. This is part of what God saw as righteous in Abram. Look, for example, with me to Genesis 12, where I had you turn there. Go to Genesis 12, 5 through 9, if you're not already there. And in Genesis 12, we see this call of Abram, but notice, starting in verse 5, what Abram does when he uh, gets called to follow Yahweh. It says, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord, and notice it's capital L-O-R-D, and so behind that is the Tetragrammaton, it's the Hebrew name of God, which we might pronounce Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to, notice it again, Yahweh. It's being very specific. It's to that God who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, which means house of God, Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to, what's that name again? Yahweh, the Lord, and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still getting toward, going toward the Negev. Now, whenever you see something repetitive like this in Scripture, the author's trying to make a point. He's making it very clear that 
the, uh, that the work of Abram was to declare and proclaim and witness and testify. Can I get a testify, right? Testify to who? Yahweh. He's testifying to Yahweh above all other gods. Now, this would be no big deal. We think, oh, great, he's doing this. What a great guy. He's going to church, right? But this was in the midst of a people that worshiped fertility idols and believed that if you worshiped a different god than the god of your land, the god of Canaan, would make your crops fail and bring infertility on your offspring, and therefore you would die. So it was a big deal. And so when someone came into town making altars about a different god, proclaiming the name of a different god, you didn't want to upset your god, so what would you do to that person? You'd kindly ask them to leave town? Probably not in those days. What would you do? You'd kill them. You'd make them a martyr. Abram knew that he was doing this with the potential that he was going to die. And yet, in spite of that potential, Abram made this altar to Yahweh alone in the midst of a place, a grove, that most likely was used for pagan worship. That was a known thing back then. And he was a witness to this God that was not yet fully known. And then Abram's offspring were chosen from among all the people groups by God so that they might be a witness to God's glory to the surrounding nations. This was the whole point of the people of Israel. And here's one scripture that slightly describes it. There's tons of them, but there's one. Isaiah 43.10. You are my, what's that word? Say it again. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. In other words, you're supposed to make up, in a sense, for what Adam and Eve failed to do. But you know the story. While individuals within the assembly of Israel stayed true to Yahweh and pursued righteousness and justice, the people overall failed in their witness. They failed to the point where they were starting to worship other gods. They were making a testimony and a witness to other gods, so much so that God had to discipline them and to protect his character of justice amongst the other people in the world, that discipline was carried out. And time and time again, God then sent forth new individual witnesses to Israel to call them to repent and follow after God in covenant faithfulness. What were these witnesses called? They were called prophets. Prophets beginning with Moses, going all the way to Malachi, and each of these Old Testament uh, lawyers, if you will, that's really what prophets were, is Old Testament lawyers, stood in the metaphorical courtroom of God's justice and declared Israel guilty of covenant unfaithfulness, calling them to repentance, using the very Old Testament covenant, saying, this is a witness against their guilt. But even they were refused and murdered. The Old Testament is filled with the true witness of God toward man and the blatant rebellion of humanity as a whole and our faithless witness, ignoring God and removing him from his rightful position as God, King, and Lord, and lawgiver. And so all of this pushes forward in our mind. It comes rushing forward, this idea of witness, setting the stage for our text this morning in Mark. You can go ahead and turn there to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, starting in verse 53. And let me paint the immediate context now that we've looked at the canonical context, the background in the Old Testament. Here, like the rest of Scripture, we will see a masterful interweaving of the false witness of man, especially Peter, as the representative of mankind, and the true witness of Christ as the representative of mankind to bring justification. And the perfect and faithful witness of Jesus will shine amongst this backdrop of the faithless witness of mankind. The scene is set perfectly. We listeners will find ourselves in the center of a courtroom-like scene. And Jesus has been arrested and taken to the home of the high priest in the wee hours of the early morning 
uh, of the next day. You can look at this uh, picture of Jerusalem in the day of Jesus. He went from this kind of area where most likely the upper room was in the, the higher end part of Jerusalem over there towards the top of the screen you can see with the arrow over towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And then from the Garden of Gethsemane, he was brought back to this high end area of town. And why was this? Well, the high priest at this time was a man named Joseph Caiaphas. He was the son-in-law of a man named Annas, the previous high priest. And historical texts tell us that uh, rather than being just religious leaders, these men were very high in terms of uh, politics and also business. They were using the sacrificial system to make a lot of money, uh, kind of manipulating people who would bring their sacrifices and saying, oh, that's not a very good sacrifice. Let me get you a better sacrifice, but it's going to take that sacrifice and another 50 bucks, right? And so they were making tons of money. And so these, these men were, were basically uh, the high, higher part of the hierarchy of society. They were living in this area known as uh, Mount Zion. And so Jesus had been taken not to the temple where they usually conducted their business and would have had a court like this, but he was taken instead from Gethsemane to Mount Zion to the house of the high priest. And up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, the idea of witness and even the word martus and its derivatives have only been used four times, okay? 14 chapters, four times. But now within the first nine verses of what we're going to read, the word witness and its derivatives are seen seven times in its various forms, testify, testimony, witness, as well as the word for false witness, pseudo martoreo, right, which means a false witness. You can hear that word martyr in there, okay? And this court is a kind of kangaroo court. They cared more about their desired political outcome than they did about justice. Does that sound familiar at all? I don't know, politics maybe, right? They cared more about their desired political outcome than they did about justice. And there are at least nine reasons that this gathering would have most likely not have qualified as falling within the laws of the Sanhedrin, of the religious leaders. Among them is the required first-person eyewitness of at least two people speaking directly to the charge of the person who's in trouble. And if their testimony didn't agree, then all testimony that was given was to be thrown out. And false witnesses were then to be given the sentence for which they were testifying if their testimony turned out to be false. In other words, if they were saying, crucify him, and your testimony was turned out to be false, what would happen to you? You'd be crucified. So you need to be real careful with what you were saying. The reality is, is this is not what's going on here, as we'll read. And to top it all off, official business had to be conducted in the temple, in the hall of hewn stone, not in the high priest's home. But again, not unlike today, for the purpose of political expediency, leaders will bend the rules of integrity and pervert justice so that their ends can be met. And in this case, their desired end was the death of this annoying country prophet from Galilee named Jesus. And now we have the stage set as we step into the text in Mark 14, 53. Let's take a look there. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? 
What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him, saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. You see, they could tell by the way he spoke. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Immediately we see two major contrasting ideas. First, the false and unfaithful witness of Peter compared with the true and faithful witness of Jesus. Let's take a look at both this morning. First, the false and unfaithful witness of Peter. The false and unfaithful witness of Peter. As we have already seen, the story of Scripture is one of the false and unfaithful witness of mankind. In part, original sin entered in and destroyed mankind because we were unwilling to declare the truth that Yahweh is God and we are not. Friends, that's at the heart of every sin, is that he is God and I am not. If I override that, I step into sin. And we were not willing as humanity to declare that his ways are righteous and true and his law is good and our ways are contrary to him, acting in unrighteousness and justice. And friends, you and I are just as guilty. We don't get to look at Peter and, and say, oh, what a terrible thing this was, the denial of Jesus, and give ourselves a pass. Because even as believers, we often, and I do mean often, within the church, do what is good in our own eyes even if Scripture is clear that we should not. Rather than submit to Christ, we submit to our own internal ideas of truth, our own internal ideas of what is right. The line from the end of the book of Judges speaks rightly about all of mankind, not just men in those days. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, does this not sound like America of 2020? Does this not sound like the world of 2020? Does this not sound like us when we choose to not submit ourselves to an authority outside of ourselves, but take on authority ourselves and instead do what's right in our own eyes? Mankind has not changed. If anything, the movement of secularism and atheism and the complete dismissal of God has grown over the years. And in the church, as we looked at last week, we often live as practical atheists 
declaring with our mouth that we are Christians, but our life showing no evidence. In the greater section of Mark 14 that includes the betrayal of Judas, the abandonment of Christ by the disciples, and now the denial of Peter, we have the two bookends of the false witness intended to highlight the true witness of Jesus Christ. And Peter acts as the representative of all mankind in his denial. Rather than condemn Peter, each of us should look at ourselves, look at our past, and even our potential future and realize that we are not that different from Peter. It should cause us to fall down in humility and absolute reliance upon Christ and his spirit to hold us back from such denial. The second we think that we have passed the test and we can coast the rest of our lives and not potentially fall into what Peter fell into here, we are going to be eaten up by the enemy. Notice that it did not take much. It's highlighted by Mark that unlike Christ, Peter was not confronted by a band of thugs with weapons and torches. He was called out by a slave girl, a person that is quite literally in this setting on the lowest rung of the societal hierarchy of the day. It would be like one of our tiny little infants running up to me, a six foot ten man in the foyer and saying, uh, Hans, do you know Jesus? And, and me going, no, no, I've never seen him before, right? We don't laugh and think, well, that's ludicrous. Why would you do that? That's what was going on with Peter. That was the level that he had sunk to. And notice further that Peter did stay true in one sense. He alone followed after Jesus as he was carried away in chains. He stayed true to the idea that he was not going to leave Jesus, but his discipleship and following had moved from an intimate closeness at the side of Jesus to a distance and to doubt. You even see that word there, that he was at a distance in verse 54. J.R. Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, says this perfectly. He says, Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for one of safe observation. I wonder how many in today's church that might describe. Mark is pointing out to the Roman Christians who are the original hearers of this gospel who would soon face persecution that if Peter, the head of the disciples and hero of the faith, could suffer this level of denial, then they could as well. Should they not rather then press into Christ so that they might be spiritually empowered and prepared to give their own life should the day come? Another commentator on Mark says this, mere profession of faith is not enough. Constancy in all circumstances is what is required of true disciples. Dear friends, the last few weeks have been heavy teachings as we've engaged in the Passion Week of Christ. It is hard and convicting to read these stories, and this morning we should still be convicted by the question, to what is our life and our future death testifying. What is our witness? Everyone is a witness. The question is, to what? And when you've attended as many funerals as I have, and praise God, I haven't had to officiate many of them, but the few I've had to, it's made me realize what I want my own testimony to be one day. Friends, I don't know what's going on in this coronavirus situation, but it's almost as if we believe we can escape death. 
Now, it's good and right to be safe and to be wise, but at the same time, it seems as if people have forgotten that we will all die one day. And the question for you is, is what do you want said at your funeral by the people that knew you and saw your witness? Oh, man, he had some real great hobbies. Hans was a real hobby guy. He really liked that one team. You know, he was a Notre Dame through and through, fighting Irish. Guys, if that's what's said at my funeral, I think I will rise out of the grave and strangle myself. That's awful. I want, I want people who are the people that watch my witness to say, Hans loved Jesus, period. Hans loved his wife, loved his children, and loved his church, all because he loved Jesus, period. And then everybody celebrate that I'm with my Lord. That's what I want. The question is, is, is my life testifying and witnessing to that direction? We all are witnesses. What are we witnessing to? I hope that as we're confronted with the truth of the passion of the Christ, that we're humbled so as to be his servants to a greater and greater degree. We must press into Christ because without focused perseverance, friends, we can find ourselves weeping at our own denial of Christ. Rather than that, instead of that, like many of the first century Christians, we should instead look to Christ and see his true and faithful witness so that we might be empowered to do the same. So let's do that now. Let's look at the true and faithful witness of Christ that is compared quite obviously here with the abandonment and betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter. Here, as we see Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin, we see a section of text that's possibly the high point or the apex of the Gospel of Mark. As we've repeated throughout, the major application question intended in Mark, you should, you should know it well by now, that was intended for his first century listeners and for us as well is, who do you say Jesus is? Right? Everybody say it with me. Who do you say Jesus is? It was intended for the listener to say, well, I know what Mark thinks. Mark has presented it very well, but who do I say Jesus is? He's presented his case throughout, but here Mark communicates in abundant clarity. He perfectly captures the two parts of this God-man that was such a hard thing for the early church to wrap its mind around, and even today it's hard. You have a God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And here you see it on an earthly plane in his humanity, Jesus has been confronted, overpowered even, captured and put on trial under the authority of man and the ruling kingdom of darkness. And yet, at the exact same time, in the exact same person, but within the spiritual realm, Jesus is being prepared for enthronement so that he might reign supreme over all dominions as king and ultimate judge, all in the same text. 100% man, 100% God, perfect in his work and witness. Throughout Mark, by his actions and words, Jesus has perfectly presented the Father to people, presented his character, that idea that we've looked at many times in Mark from Exodus 34, where Yahweh says who he is, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression for generations. And now, in his willing and voluntary death, Jesus is witnessing to the sacrificial love of the triune God, himself included, that he would give his own life to bring reconciliation with the Godhead. 
And even in his silence as the charges are presented, Jesus shows a complete and absolute trust in the just nature of the Father God. You see, you can't hold your tongue when injustice is being done unless you know and trust that God will make it right one day. This is an amazing witness that we see here. And three days later in his resurrection, Jesus proved his victorious power over the kingdom of darkness and sin and death, proving also his just nature because he was presented as the one to take on the wrath of God for the sin of mankind, that God will indeed by no means clear the guilty, that second portion of Exodus 34, taking on himself the punishment deserved for mankind that you and I deserved for our removal of God as God in our lives. And all of this is what causes the writers of Scripture to speak of Jesus as the perfect witness, the faithful witness. Lauren read one of them to us earlier from Revelation 1.5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Just a few uh, chapters later, in Revelation 3.14, the author again says, as he's writing to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That word beginning there, don't get all twisted on that. I've had debates with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons in my driveway. The word is RK. It means the source of. It means the ruler over. It doesn't mean that he was created by the Father. Just FYI, just to clear that up for you guys, okay? Jesus is the one who is the faithful and true witness. He is the perfect witness and testifier in his life, death, and resurrection of God the Father's glory. But this text brings something even more exciting and pointed. We see the high priest ask a question. In the Greek grammar, amazingly, it's actually not presented as a question. Uh, that's a, a, a little bit of a commentary here in the ESV. It's presented actually as a statement with a little intonation on it, as if it were to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the blessed, Right? And that, in the wooden Greek, that's what we get. And in essence, it's so great because Mark is saying the high priest, the very enemy of God in this moment, is actually the first to testify the truth about Jesus. And Jesus responds with one of the most loaded statements in all of Scripture. He says two words, I am, ego eimi. He's referencing the great I am with which God referred to himself in the burning bush of Moses. Who do I say sent me, God? And Yahweh says, tell them that I am has sent you. I am that I am. And Jesus then continues with the statement that cut the religious leaders to their core. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of capital P, power, that's the Father God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is pulling from two weighty messianic Old Testament prophecies here. The first is one we've covered many times in Mark. Mark uses it a ton. We'll look at it in the book of Daniel that we're going to go to next after the book of Mark. And in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, it's this phrase, or it's this section of text. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's the Father God, and was presented before him. And to him, to this one that came, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am that guy. Who's got two fingers and comes on the clouds? Jesus would have said this guy, right? 
Jesus is saying, I am the judge. I'm the one that is coming. I am the one that will come to judge even those of you that are persecuting me now, he says. Jesus is claiming that the one given all dominion and all authority and all rule and all kingdom is himself. Can you imagine what these authority figures in the Jewish religion would have thought? How dare he? But even more, he's pulling from Psalm 110. Why don't you turn there with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Speaking of this sitting at the right hand of power, Jesus is pulling from a messianic psalm that they would have been well acquainted with. Let's read the entirety of Psalm 110. This is a psalm of David where he says, Yahweh says to my Lord, Yahweh says to Adonai, okay, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Well, can you get any more practical than that? Jesus is saying, I will rule in the midst of my enemies, and it's starting right now in Mark 14. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Not only is Jesus using this imagery to call himself Messiah, but he's asserting his godly authority over the very leaders who are judging him, stating that they will be judged and found wanting. And canceling out their own role as priests, he's called the, order, the one in the order of Melchizedek. This is a reference to the priest without beginning or end from Genesis 14. You see how there's so much Old Testament scripture that's brought forward here. In other words, to sum it all up, even if you're not familiar with all of these references, Jesus is stating that he is the final judge, and he's going to pass judgment. Now, interestingly, this statement seems to be the one that is focused on future fulfillment, as if way in the future he's going to come in the clouds. But both Matthew and Luke add to Mark's statement and use the language, from now on you will see. See, it was very clear to the first century Christians that didn't have a lot of bad theology wrapped in their heads like we do in 2020 when it comes to the coming of Christ. They were being told, I am going to be king and it's very soon and I will take my place at the right hand of the Father and I will judge very soon. This speaks to much of what we looked at in Mark 13, that Jesus' enthronement and position as both king and judge, while not fully complete, was inaugurated at the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And for the first century believers, and for you and me, this is an amazing truth. And it intends us to bring, it intends to bring hope. While the first century Christians were literally looking ahead to their potential martyrdom, the stadiums being built and the wild beasts being brought in, they were also hearing that their death and faithfulness to Christ would not be in vain. It would be done in full witness and testimony to the fact that Christ is indeed king and he will be coming to bring judgment to the living and the dead. That judgment is already happening now. It's just that it will be fulfilled in the future. You ever think about that? There have been times where the Holy Spirit, praise God, by his grace has brought clarity to me in the moment of sin where I and my humanity go, I'm glad I got a few years before Jesus returns and I can repent of this one. When in actuality, God is seeing in complete clarity my blatant sin and already judging it 
as sin and already declaring that he has died for that sin and already calling me to conviction all in that instant and moment that I think I have this time to wait. Friends, Jesus sits in his throne right now. Like Stephen, we can think of what it would be to look as if heaven opened and to see Jesus sitting on the throne over his kingdom of which we are a small part. Do you have that vision in your head? Do you think of your Christian walk in those terms or are you waiting for it to actually take place? It's taking place right now. It took place on that day. It exists. This is the inaugurated kingdom, not yet fully fulfilled, but Jesus is our king. Not to mention that if Mark was writing in the later half of the 60s AD, the listeners knew that Rome was butting up against the doors of Jerusalem. They were on the verge of destroying and bringing a final siege against Jerusalem. It happened in 70 AD, but it started, work towards it started as many years back as five to seven years. People knew that it was coming. And so the hearers of this, being Romans, would have known that Jerusalem was going to go under. And that Jesus' prophecies from Mark 13 would be soon fulfilled, proving that the mantle of authority had been removed from the religious leaders of Israel and had been given to the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah. Coincidentally, in that siege in August of 70 AD, the final moments of it, on August 5th, 70 AD, the priests came up against a really bad omen. Do you know what that omen was? It was that they ran out of sacrifices. They had no more lambs to sacrifice. God, by his sovereignty, had literally cut off even the possibility of them having any other sacrifice than Christ. And yet they, like we, were so blinded to the idea that they kept pushing on. Jesus was indeed the one true and faithful witness of God. He was the one true and faithful sovereign God. Brothers and sisters, do you know and study the one true and faithful witness of God? Are you intimately acquainted with Jesus or do you, like Peter, stand at a distance and hope that maybe he's your ticket into heaven? Are you intimately acquainted with him? Because he alone can proclaim the character and will and rule of the Father. So, so often, it's such an easy answer when, when people ask for pastoral counsel, what do I do in this situation? And I say, well, what did Jesus do? What do you think Jesus would have done? Guys, remember back a few decades ago, they had the wristbands, WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's a fantastic question. I think it totally got Christian easy, Christian cheesy, right, with that wristband. But it's true. What would Jesus do? Look to what would Jesus do? Be intimately acquainted with the one true and faithful witness. Because when we act in, in, in what we feel is true, in what we think is true, we end up like Peter, the false and unfaithful witness, rather than like Jesus, the true and faithful witness. And perhaps you're convicted of that this morning as you sit and listen. You realize that with your words or with your lifestyle, you have looked more like the disciples abandoning Christ or like Judas betraying Christ or like Peter distancing from Christ and maybe even denying him. If that's the case, I want to declare to you an important truth this morning. While there needs to be conviction that leads to godly repentance, there is not condemnation because God is more powerful than your denial He's more powerful than your betrayal. He's more powerful than your abandonment. If we look ahead just a little bit in Mark, we see this in Mark 16, 7. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. This is what the angels said to the women as they came to the tomb. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. 
There you will see him just as he told you. Here, the women at the tomb witness the fact that Christ has left the tomb. They're given directions by the angels. And within those directions is the clear statement that Peter, even having denied Christ, will be one upon whom Christ calls to witness to the nations. And just as with Peter, God had not finished, has not finished with you or me yet. Even if you feel that sense of conviction over denial, God is not done with you. It doesn't matter what age you are, what maturity level in the faith you are, God is not done with you. He will be faithful to complete the work that he's begun in you, and that work is to make you a proclaimer of the gospel, a witness of his truth. And that's the third truth that we need to look at this morning. God has called us and empowered us to be his faithful witnesses. You see, it's clear from Scripture that we are indeed more like Peter in our denial of the Lord than we are like Christ. And that is why he had to come and die in our place and resurrect and triumph over death. And if you haven't accepted that yet, I would love to talk with you after service about what that means for you and how it is to be a disciple walking in that truth. But we, like those first disciples, we are too weak in and of ourselves to be as faithful a witness as God is himself in the person of Jesus. But the old adage that may often be misused of the, where the Lord guides, he provides, it's true in this case. The Lord has guided us to be his faithful witnesses, called us to do so. And he has provided us his Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and righteousness and helps us to recall to mind that's that which we have studied because we are intimately engaged with the study of Scripture. Amen? Friend, are you intimately engaged with the study of Scripture? When a person comes and says, hey, tell me all about your car and, and uh, you know, what do you know about it? What's underneath the hood? I have to go, I don't know. And I get out my, my book from the little jockey box there and you know, I kind of show it to him and I'm like, uh, uh, you can read it for yourself, right? But if somebody comes to me and says, what's the narrative of scripture? What's the story of Jesus? I go, great, how many hours you got? Let's sit down, let's do this. Let's do this, right? And guys, that's not just because I'm a pastor. That's because I'm a Christian. You should be in the same boat. Yes, you may not have a seminary degree. That's okay. Have you read through the word of God? Do you know the gospels? Do you know the truth of the gospel? The Lord has equipped you with that. Do you intimately know it so you can speak it? Do you, dear saint, feel prepared and equipped to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And before you say, no, see, this church isn't doing it for me. Guys, every Sunday we give you the gospel. The question is, Monday through Saturday, are you engaging in it or are you letting it go out your ear? Are you engaging in the work to study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth? Are you studying it? Are you able to express the narrative of Scripture as we've looked at this morning? Do you know the basic stories in that narrative arc of Scripture? Can you speak the truth that Jesus died for the sin of mankind, was resurrected after three days, all according to the Scriptures, and that he's now enthroned in a position of ultimate power, waiting for the day he'll bring judgment upon the earth, raising some to eternal life and some to eternal death? Do you know the gospel and can you proclaim it? Have you practiced it and memorized it and prayed that the Lord would give you the chance to use it? If not, friends, this week is the week. This is the week to prepare so that you're ready. And if not, if you sit down and you get complete writer's block and you don't know what to write on your phone or that piece of paper or on your laptop and you can't practice it, you can't verbalize it, please, for the love of Christ, come to one of us as your leaders and say, I am realizing that even though I may even be a member and I've said the gospel to you in that meeting, I am not equipped. 
We would love to engage in that work of discipleship to walk you through the narrative of Scripture and what the gospel is. Don't be afraid. If you've been here for nine years and you come and you go, I just don't know it, I'm not going to go, oh gosh, were you listening to me for nine years? No, I'm going to engage with you. I'm going to say, awesome, I'm glad we're at this point. Let's do this work. Let's get this accomplished so that you are ready to be sent out as a witness. If not, if you're not prepared, let us know. Start to prepare. You see, prior to the pouring out of his spirit, we've seen what his disciples were. But with the empowerment of the spirit, look at what the Lord says that they will do. This is Acts 1.8. He says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And guys, that's not about uh, charismatic gifts that he's talking about. He's saying you'll be empowered to go speak the gospel, to be witnesses And after it's taken place, look at what happens to Peter, the one who denied Jesus. He gets up and he's the first one to proclaim the truth of the gospel in the New Testament. And with many other words, he, Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He bore witness, the very thing he couldn't do before. He preached and proclaimed what he witnessed and was martyred eventually with passion and strength. Church tradition tells us he begged to be martyred in a Uh, upside-down pose, crucified, because he didn't want to be crucified with the same respect as his Savior. This man who denied Jesus eventually was crucified for him. That was the level of empowerment that the Holy Spirit gave him. And look at even John, the disciple John, who abandoned him and deserted him in the garden. John wrote the gospel according to John, and he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And friends, it is not just these disciples. A quick study of church history will show Christian brothers and sisters empowered by the Spirit to withstand horrific conditions to witness to the goodness and glory of God. Men and women like you and me who think, man, I'm so weak, I don't have any power, I I can barely decide what to eat for breakfast in the morning or what clothes to wear to work. Guys, he's giving you the Holy Spirit. In the year 203, church history tells us of a young noblewoman around the age of 23, named Perpetua, that was imprisoned for her faith shortly after giving birth. In the account of her martyrdom, she asked, she's asked by her father to recant her faith, repent of her faith. And her documented response is this, neither can I call myself anything else than what I am, a Christian. She was flogged in the middle of a stadium at 23. Literally, the narrative says that she was, had her clothes ripped off And it speaks to the fact that her body, you could still see that she had just given birth. Her body was still in that state. And she was thrown to the wild beasts in the midst of a gladiatorial stadium. And her last words to her fellow believers who were with her was this, stand fast in the faith and love one another, all of you, and be not offended at my sufferings. Her last action was to give the holy kiss to her brothers and sisters. There's a picture that I didn't want to show you that's there the way that she died was she was plunged through with a sword and what she did was she grabbed the sword of the gladiator and let it towards her throat. That's the level of courage she had. Half a decade earlier, an apostle of John the disciple named Polycarp was the earliest recorded martyr. Oh, that's a picture there of Perpetua, sorry. Half a decade earlier, or half a century earlier, excuse me, an apostle of John the Disciple named Polycarp was the earliest recorded martyr outside of the Bible. He was called to curse the Christ, and he refused. 
The account is written as from an eyewitness perspective where the magistrate holding Polycarp said, swear the oath and I will release thee, revile the Christ. Polycarp's response, for 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Taken into the stadium to be martyred, the magistrate persisted, swear by the genius of Caesar and Polycarp answers, if you suppose vainly that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and you feign that you are ignorant of who I am, hear me plainly. I am a Christian. But if you would learn the doctrine of Christianity, assign a day and give me a hearing. He was then threatened with wild beasts, and Polycarp responded, Call for them, for the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us as Christians. But it is a noble thing to change from untowardness to righteousness. Threatened with fire then, Polycarp responded, You threaten with that fire which burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why are you delaying? Come, do what you will. As they built and prepared the fire and leaned Polycarp against the stake, they went to get nails to nail him to it so he would not run away when the fire burned him. Polycarp saw this and stated, Leave me as I am, for he that has granted me to endure the fire will grant me also to remain at the pile unmoved, even without the security which you seek from the nails. Friends, even now in 2020, men and women, normal everyday men and women like you and me are held fast by the power of faith and the spirit. This last week, a report came out about believers in North Korea, among other religions, but a good portion of the report had to do with Christians. You can find it at the Korea Future Initiative or uh, www.koreafuture.org, koreafuture.org. And it details men and women enduring horrific persecution for their faith in North Korea in 2020. You can also go to persecution.com, which is the website of uh, Voice of the Martyrs, and read stories of Christians from around the globe that are persecuted and martyred for their faith daily. These men and women are just like you and me. The three people that were killed in that church in Nice, France, went to church that day thinking they were celebrating morning mass. They're just like you and me. Simply people that lean on the Spirit of God to supply them with the faith and the strength to withstand the pain and struggle of what would come against them in persecution. Friend, do you pray that God might grant you the ability in your relationships to have the ability to witness and testify to the gospel of Christ when there is no persecution? Do you pray for the same thing in the midst of persecution? Will you join me in prayer this week that the Lord would count us worthy to testify to his glory and gospel in the miraculously mundane of everyday life and in the relationships we already have and if need be, in the greatest of sacrifices? Would you join me in praying for that? Let's be a people that follow after Christ as the faithful and true witnesses made in the image of Christ, reborn in the image of Christ, empowered by his spirit so that we can proclaim to the entire world that Jesus is our savior, he's our king and Lord, and he's coming again. Amen?